We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. I'm Jeff Begays on this edition of America Change Forever from CBS News Radio Capital Bomb Scare. A North Carolina man threatens to detonate a bomb near the Capitol building and he live streams much of the scare. I was there from beginning to end. For five hours, Floyd Roseberry held police at bay after driving his pickup truck onto the sidewalk in front of the Library of Congress just across from the U.S. Capitol and claiming to have a bomb. The revolution's on. Roseberry live-streamed the standoff on Facebook requesting to speak to the president. I don't want to die, Joe. And ranting about the end of the war in Afghanistan. Just like the people in Afghanistan want to go home. The 49-year-old from North Carolina said that he had a propane gas container in the back of the truck. The driver of the truck told the responding officer on the scene that he had a bomb and what appeared, the officer said, appeared to be a detonator in the man's hand. He claimed the detonator would trigger the gas container if police, including snipers posted around the perimeter, shot him. Congressional offices were evacuated and streets were sealed off as bomb-sniffing dogs searched for additional explosives Roseberry claimed to have knowledge of. Investigators negotiated with him for several hours, and at around 2 p.m., when they were trying to deliver a cell phone to him, he surrendered. Joining me to talk about it is Catherine Schweit, a former FBI agent and now newly published author of the book Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. Kate, let's talk about what happened on Thursday. The FBI was on the scene. What are some of the challenges that law enforcement faces in responding to bomb scares? And this one was live-streamed. Yeah, I think live streamed is a whole new uh, world of concern for us. You know, we often worry about uh, the situation historically about, oh, maybe somebody's on a telephone or somebody's, you know, listening to the radio channels for police. This idea, you know, which we certainly, it's not a brand new issue, right? But this idea that you're going to have live streaming, I think they were quick to get uh, get him off air. You can't negotiate. You can't have a negotiator working with somebody while the whole world is second guessing how you negotiate. So I think that live stream is it's its own challenge. And also, I think one of the threats, you know, we didn't see yesterday happen. Uh, one of the situations we didn't see happen yesterday, but one of the potential inevitabilities is somebody who wants to do the grandstanding. And like we saw the uh, two, um, the two um, news reporters, you know, who were killed live on air you know, in Virginia uh, a couple of years ago, we don't want to see that and then have somebody else say, that's a cool idea. So we, we want to make sure that we get those people offline if we can. So it's just a whole other layer of, you know, IT world uh, threats that you have to think about. It sounds like, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, Tom Manger is now taking over uh, 
Capitol Police Department. Uh, he's he knows what he's doing. He's been around the block. He's had leader leadership positions all over law enforcement. Uh, you know, I don't want I don't want to put you in a position where you have to Monday morning quarterback. But how do you think they handled that situation at the Capitol, given the threat? You know, um, actually, I do know Tom Manger, uh, and I think he is an incredible addition to the Capitol Police. And I think if more than anything else, what we saw yesterday um, was a good, coordinated, quick effort. And I'll, you know, I mean, I'll add, Jeff, you know how things are. Uh, there is a very coordinated response um, that happens in the National Capital Response Squad out of the FBI, the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police Department. They know how to do this. They, res- they have responded to things. They respond to several things every, every month that are, that are the same type of response in that you have to send a bunch of people out and make sure that there isn't a danger, uh, although not, they don't always rise to this level of a potential bomb threat. So I think they did a good job, and, and it was encouraging, especially seeing that those fences around the Capitol came down just just recently, that when somebody did kind of breach into the perimeter, they jumped right to it and, and were right on it. I, I love to see that. Indeed. And I I was there, as I mentioned, and, you know, just seeing the police tape, police cars, police officers all over the place. And one thing I saw that stood out to me, uh, some man tried to cross the tape and he was he was on one of those scooters that you see posted up around cities across America these days that you rent. And one of the officers told him to, to stop. Hey, turn back. You can't go this way. So the guy says to the officer, you traitor. And I bring up that story because this is what officers across the country and especially at the Capitol are seeing right now. I went up to the officer after that interaction with that guy and the officer and I sort of shrugged my shoulders at the officer and the officer said, yeah, this is what we're hearing every day now. It's daily. Uh, And I, I bring that up because what officers are seeing what the FBI is seeing online are these these threats. They're seeing uh, these threats against lawmakers. This 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 rhetoric online that is really concerning. And these everyday officers on the streets, they're seeing it too, face to face. Yeah, I think that you you bring up a great point. And you know, I was kind of thinking yesterday about what I saw in the headlines and what I saw people talking about, and and so many times now in the way that we never saw before when we think about threats this thread of patriot he's a patriot he's a patriot is woven as some sort of justification for violence and police officers are facing that let's you know this is not a new story in washington dc john wilkes booth thought he was a patriot but when you say someone's a patriot suddenly to question their their conduct is it is uh, then you're not being patriotic and that doesn't really that doesn't really play but we see that a lot now and the police officers are facing people who are saying what you just pointed out what you witnessed yourself police officers and my, I've uh, you know a lot of friends in in the apartments in Chicago and Detroit and other places and they're facing the same thing with these this concept of if you challenge a police officer you're not a patriot and that, of course, is is uh, that's wrong, uh, to, just to speak the obvious. But I think it's a challenge that law enforcement is facing because they are going to have to continue to 
you know, be silent and stand tall and do their job in spite of the fact that people believe that they're somehow not uh, not being loyal to the, to their own constitution. Yeah, it is uh it is a really challenging atmosphere uh for law enforcement for the media frankly uh what we're seeing is something that we haven't seen in this country ever. Uh, but what we have seen, unfortunately, over the years is this rise in mass shootings. And, un- you know, unfortunately, as we uh, get back out in the world, as things ease up, we hope more with the, the pandemic behind us. You know, people, you know, kids are going back to school. People are going back to work. Uh, and I bring that up because you are, as I said at the outset, the author of a book called Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. You know, it's a topic that is uncomfortable to talk about because no one wants to see these things happen. Uh, You have seen your share. I've covered my share. Nobody wants to see these things happen. But the reality is that they're going to happen. And you have dedicated a, a, a big part of your career to researching these incidents, to uh, you, you probably know about mass shooting incidents more than what anyone else in law enforcement in this country. I mean, that, what do you think? Well, you know, it is a, it's a, not a great, uh, it's not a, a wonderful chit to have in your pocket when you're playing, you know, when you're out at a, a coffee party, a coffee uh, bar or something, or you're at having dinner with friends, but the bottom line is it is a threat that's out there and it's, and continues to grow this idea of mass shootings. And I think we, uh, I'll tell you just over the last couple of years, you know, when I was working at the FBI running their uh, active shooter program, their programs focused on reducing this type of violence, this mass violence that is so um, frightening, we thought the numbers might go down, but they haven't gone down. And we, we continue to see a 10 and 20, 30% increase last year, a 35% increase on mass shootings at a year when we had um, a pandemic going on. So now you combine this continued increase in threats of mass shootings with all the pent up kind of anger and frustration, like we saw with our individual yesterday, you know, the, the key to being able to fix the shooting, uh, mass shooting problem then is going to be to reduce that stress on everybody. And really, we have to focus more on prevention than anything else, which is why I wrote the book. We, we have to find a way to stop looking at where the guns are and what we respond to, uh, to the detriment of looking at prevention issues. And that's, that's my focus is everybody has a role to play in prevention. They need to find a way. What can they do? Because we can't have, and I'll add this one thing, Jeff, we can't have every single person like we saw after what occurred yesterday downtown, people saying, well, he's a good, you know, he's a good old country boy. And, you know, he was just fed up and he's, he's never done anything like this before. Yeah, no, most of these shooters haven't ever done anything like this before. But they do have a lot of signs in their background, a lot of a lot of behaviors that we're concerned about and, and behaviors that show that they are intending to commit a violent act. People have to watch for them. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard this argument before. You know, a lot of people immediately turn to, to gun control issues. And I and I get that. But what you're saying is that there there's more to this than just gun control. This is this is all about. You know, they they talk about when it comes to terrorism, see something, say something. I mean, they're there every one of these mass shootings. You have someone that somebody knows and he or she just didn't snap. They take steps. They build up to these things. 
Right. You're spot on. You're spot on, Jeff. In 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 these situations, eighty to ninety percent of the time, our research shows somebody knew something, and and didn't convey it, didn't recognize that it was a problem, thought it wasn't important enough, didn't want to get somebody in trouble, didn't want to make somebody feel bad, said to themselves, talked themselves out of it. He's never done this before. But I'll tell you about the prevention. You know, in I was looking. Uh, somebody asked me this question the other day, and I thought to myself, well, you know, ten of the 14 chapters in my book are focused on prevention efforts because I think we don't think enough about what, who are the people who do this, understand the violence that they, uh, they can commit and how we can, th- you know, assess the threat that they are, why, prof- how professionals can do that. And also how we can kind of harden our targets and how we can train people. My gosh, we train people to put on life vests and, and air, uh, air um, assistance in an airplane on the rare chance that something might happen on an airplane, but we can't protect our kids in school by just telling them how to be careful and, and how to run, hide, fight. That's wrong. And you, and correct me if I, if I get this wrong, but you literally wrote the manual that the FBI uses to respond to these incidents. Well, I, I, I did author the, the research that really told us this is the problem, right? Um, and I, and when we wanted to then, okay, now we know it's a problem. So then I was, um, when I, after the Sandy Hook massacre is really when I started working on this at, at a full bore and really was the only law enforcement person on the, I was on a team at the, then Vice President Biden's office, and I was really the only law enforcement person there. And I really felt the obligation that my team back at the FBI really had to do just what you said. We had to kind of gather the best practices and write that outline and, and give people the directions in law enforcement So because they're so busy and they don't have time to find the best practices, to look at the research. And so, yeah, we, we put that together. And uh, hopefully, you know, that's hopefully some of that is conveyed um, in, in the book. And, um, and, and we continue to do that. And it's all available. Lots of stuff is available online, but online is just hectic and messy. So, yeah, I try to try to do my part, especially, you know, I feel like law enforcement is, is freaked out enough. There's so much they have to do. They don't need to know what are the best practices if we can tell them. Well, and I think you have done your part because I remember when uh, that uh, document was uh, made public uh, by the FBI and some of the steps that uh, people were advised to take when these mass shootings uh, unfortunately unfold. And, you know, what I've seen each and really each and every time among law enforcement is the the proof that what you compiled there has been effective and that there is there is a way that law enforcement and I always say this on TV when I'm called to to uh, cover breaking news mass shootings you know they have a way of law enforcement has a way of responding to these things it's a step by step approach uh, whether it's the FBI coming to the scene and ATF coming to the scene and helping local police, there is an approach that they take and you can kind of see it unfolding. And so, Kate, I really enjoy talking to you always. Again, as a reminder, the book, and it's out now, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. Thank you. Catherine Swite. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to talk to you. Recently, I took a trip to Manchester, Vermont. Don't get me wrong. Manchester is 
gorgeous mountain views for miles. But I also saw empty storefronts. Sadly, thanks to the economy and the pandemic, Manchester looks a lot like a lot of American cities right now. And that's what I wanted to discuss, how our beautiful American cities are changing and also suffering, specifically small businesses, which are now having to adapt. The Rouse Foundation recently released the results of research conducted in 2020 and early 2021 to better understand the impact of the pandemic on Long Island's downtowns. What the report uncovered could be helpful to cities and states across America. Joining me now are Ann Golub with the Roush Foundation, Dave Capel, the former mayor of the village of Greenport on Long Island, also Team Balmick, a partner at HR&A Advisors. Obviously, during the pandemic, there are a lot of towns, cities, states that have and that are suffering. Tell me about this study. Why did you do it? We decided to do the study because we really feel that our down, our local downtowns, our main streets are the heart of our communities on Long Island. And I think that's true of so much of the country. It's the place where people go to meet their neighbors, hang out, meet, uh, go out to dinner, see a movie or whatever. So to be able to have downtowns that are thriving feels critical for the overall health of a community. Retail has been changing for a very long time. The degree to which online shopping has increased in the last several years is huge, and the extent to which it obviously increased even further during the pandemic felt like it created a real threat for our downtown communities. So we felt like we wanted to find out how are our communities doing? Where and how are they struggling? And therefore, what kinds of policies would be the best to try to help them re-energize and get, both get through the pandemic, as well as what lessons can we learn through the increased online shopping world? What makes a downtown thrive in this new environment. It's not going to be what worked in even 10 years ago. We need some different options on the table. And that's what we were striving to understand with the work that we did with HRNA advisors. Dave, how would you characterize the kinds of losses that cities or villages like the one that you were mayor of have experienced even prior to the pandemic? Well, uh, you know, the village is, is like, uh, village of Greenport's like so many other communities. You know, we, we were a, uh, uh, you know, traditional main street with with uh, bread and butter businesses like uh, uh, grocery stores, dry cleaners, hardware stores. And we've been heavily impacted by online shopping and also regional malls. So for the, really for the last 20 years, the village has been slowly adapting to a more tourist-based economy. Uh, with experiential uses like restaurants and uh, tourist-related shops to to fill in the gaps. And frankly, f- prior to the pandemic, the village was thriving. All right. And so, how is it doing now? Well, we, we've uh, we've actually done very well through the pandemic, and and up to this point, uh, we we anticipated the uh, the damage that the pandemic was going to do to us. It hit at the perfect, you know, it was like a perfect storm. It came at the wrong possible moment, at the beginning of the tourist season in the spring of last year. 
And so we knew we had to do something dramatic. And a group of us got together, including the, the uh, Greenport Business Improvement District, and made the decision to suspend parking in a, a large number of parking spaces throughout the business district to allow businesses to expand their operations onto the public street, creating what we call parklets. And uh, that's had a very dramatic and positive impact, allowed the village to survive. And it's, uh, it's actually, I think it's gonna become a permanent feature of the streetscape in Greenport. Uh, the other uh, major impact for us was the exodus from the city of New York of, of uh, people looking to escape the pandemic to places like Greenport for shelter. And so our population has actually increased significantly. And that also helped to support the village. Super team, could you get into some of the details of the kind of research that you did? Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, we had sort of, we set up an entire sort of um, a research process, if you will, you know, starting with sort of analyzing um, data, sort of various public and sort of private data sources. Um, you know, we looked at a total of 30 downtowns across Long Island and did, um, you know, on the ground sort of vacancy surveys to understand what was happening, you know, on the ground at the street level. We then sort of took a deep dive into sort of 10 different sort of downtown types across the two counties, different types of downtowns uh, to understand at a more granular level what's really happening in those 10 specific downtowns in terms of, you know, in terms of rents, in terms of business challenges and so on and so forth. We complemented this data analysis with an, with a pretty intensive online survey that we had on for, you know, uh, a couple of months where um, we sort of, um, you know, really uh, leaned on some of the chambers of commerce, some of the downtown associations, the two, the two counties, essentially to find out from businesses not just how they were faring during the pandemic, but how were they doing even before the pandemic? And as Anne sort of pointed out, one of the really, really important findings from the survey was even before the pandemic, even as sort of generally speaking, the economy was doing really, really well, one out of five businesses in Long Island downtowns had trouble, you know, had challenges. They had trouble, you know, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, competing with sort of online stores and regional malls and which, you know, which, which Anne just spoke about. But they also had trouble like, you know, finding workers, you know, qualified workers. They had trouble, um, you know, with... Uh, with uh, with uh, with with other kinds of with with uh, with taxes and uh, and and occupancy costs and rents and things of that sort. So the picture was not all rosy even before downtown and even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic struck and it just reinforced some of some of these trends. And what we found out in our survey, for example, is you know more than one third, nearly nearly forty percent of the businesses suffered. Um, you know, 50%, they suffered nearly 50% of, of sort of loss in revenues compared to their prior year. A tremendous amount of economic sort of loss and sales loss were felt by downtown business. You mentioned something that I thought was interesting. You said that some of the businesses had trouble finding qualified workers even before the pandemic. We hear about that being an issue now because, you know, some people are choosing to stay home, not go back to work. And so you have all these businesses looking to hire. 
You know, we didn't get into a lot of depth to understand what what was really happening behind the scenes on each of these sort of specific issues. But, you know, the likely cause, as we found out when we did also did a number of one-on-one interviews, Jeff, to sort of complement our data research and our online surveys. But what we heard back from a number of different sort of owner business owners and establishments especially on the on the retail food and beverage side was um, they were having a hard time retaining workers um, you know uh, Long Island as you well know is a is a difficult place to you know to to get from home to work if you don't own your own car you know public transit um, is is um, apart from the LIRR um, is is not that great. So there could be a number of different reasons why I think uh, you know local downtown businesses had a difficult time even before the pandemic retaining workers. The we have a severe housing shortage on Long Island, especially affordable housing. So it is a region that was the home of the birth of the suburbs, and the single family home predominates. And our ability to build either more apartments or townhouses or other forms of multifamily housing has been severely constrained over the years, mainly because it just doesn't have enough popular support. So the ability to attract either young people to be able to come and work on the island and find a place to live has been really difficult. And that, I think, has been a uh, significant um, factor in companies not being able to find the kinds of skilled workers that they're looking for. And even sometimes um, in the service industry, just being able to find people who can afford to live on Long Island or near Long Island and being able to commute there. Dave, as you look to the future, is it really possible for these mom and pop stores to compete with behemoths like Amazon? Well, I think so, but flexibility is, is the key. And if I could make a point, you know, in crisis, there's opportunity. And uh, the, the pandemic threw us a curve that allowed, uh, at least in Greenport, for us to throw out the book, if you will, with respect to our zoning and, and other different land use regulations and to think creatively about about how to respond. And a lot of what we discovered is permanent, will be permanent, uh, permanent changes that will enhance opportunity for small businesses. And in fact, the village has thrived. Uh, some, some of our businesses have reported the be- their best sales ever. Absolutely, I, I could not agree more. I think that really is the heart of what these, these times have taught us, that things are changing quickly and dynamically and we can't always predict. I mean, who would have thought that we would have a recurrence of a new uh, variant of the um, of COVID that would now be threatening to shut down our communities again? We just have to be uh, hyper aware of what's going on and be willing to experiment with what will help our communities thrive through this. If I if I could just add to what Dave and and Anne just said, I think the other piece on this, and 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 sort of getting back to Amazon and online, I mean there was there was a news item, yes, just yesterday, which said for the first time, you know, Amazon sales has exceeded Walmart, you know, sort of in a, you know, a predominantly sort of a brick and mortar store. So I, I think sort of. Um, 
you know, consumer preferences have changed. They will change more. I think, you know, the online sort of horse is out of the barn. So I, I think how retail changes, especially in our downtowns, um, is going to be really important. And I think we, for one, believe, I, for one, believe that this focus on experiential retail is going to be really important as sort of a, a success factor for downtowns, not just in Long Island, but throughout the country. You know, things like, you know, restaurants, things like, you know, food and beverage. But it needn't be just those. I mean, it could be things as very simple as, you know, what is the experience you get when you go to buy a certain product? You know, there are places over here which are very distinctive where in in addition to, you know, buying your favorite shoe or favorite sneaker, you have a real experience buying that. So thinking about sort of how retail changes, what kind of support services are offered by individual retailers in our downtowns to make that visit special and experiential, I think is going to be a really important factor sort of for the future success of our downtown sort of mom and pop stores. Thank you all for your time. Great, thank you. Let's continue our conversation about the changing face of mom and pop stores across the country, but also malls. I'm going to tell you a little quick, I promise, personal story. I grew up with uh, three women, uh, especially close to me, my grandmother, my aunt, and my mother. And what they would like to do, what they always liked to do together was go to the mall and they would just walk for hours. And here was the thing. They would drag me and my brother along. And so we had to sit and wait as they would go try things on. And then they would continue to walk and walk and walk. And of course, I would say, Grandma, Mom, Auntie, when are we going to go home, please? So I grew up not loving malls. But once I got older, you know what? I started to appreciate malls because, boy, do I like to shop. And I look around the country these days, and sometimes I see malls seemingly disappearing. So I wanted to talk about that. Let's uh, discuss it with Tom McGee, uh, president and CEO of ICSC. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. All right. So tell me first, what does ICSC do? Well, ICSC represents um, anyone who has anything to do with retail real estate. So uh, certainly um, mall developers and tenants, but also open air uh, developers and tenants, uh, any freestanding retail uh, and increasingly, you know, logistics and uh, office and uh, residential developers as well, because you see an increasing amount of mixed use uh, development using retail as the anchor. So we have a very uh, broad perspective uh, around retail uh, and uh, and its convergence in both the electronic and uh, and other forms of commercial real estate. All right, so let's let's talk about the future of malls because there are some people who think. Malls are disappearing. What what do you say to that? I, I don't think that's accurate. You know, clearly there is, you know, there have been some properties that, that have been well publicized and that people see that have been challenged. And, and you know, the pandemic accelerated uh, the, the conditions around some of those properties. But there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, thriving malls uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and I actually think, you know, the trends that we saw uh, take place during the pandemic that really were accelerated and were occurring prior to the pandemic, you know, including, you know, the millennials increasingly moving to the suburbs, buying homes, having kids, et cetera. 
create a condition, uh, you know, for the mall sector that is quite positive. Uh, and uh, clearly, we've all experienced, you know, this uh, appetite to get out uh, as we begin, hopefully, to emerge from the pandemic. And you saw really strong retail sales and really strong foot traffic uh, at malls over the course of the of 2021. Uh, and so I, I actually just don't buy into that uh, narrative. I, I, I acknowledge that there will be some properties that are challenged and will continue to be challenged and, and likely will be repurposed and need to be repurposed. But the mall sector as a whole, uh, I think, will be with us uh, for a long period of time. And people have been you know, predicting the demise of the malls for, for 30 plus years. And, and yet, quite frankly, we're still at basically the same level of malls over the last number of decades. Surely, though, the mall experience must be evolving. You're absolutely right. I mean, actually, I'll give you just kind of a, an illustrative example of that. If you look at the, the percentage of, of gross leasable area, square footage within a mall or within retail properties overall, over the course of the last six, seven years, you know, you went from about a three quarters of that property being devoted to traditional retail to now, you know, about 60 to 65 percent of that being devoted to traditional retail and the repurposing of the rest of that square footage to things like entertainment, food and beverage, other services, a lot of local uh, type of uh, tenant offerings, which is clearly, um, you know, what consumers want. And so you really see a classic repurposing of the properties taking place. Quite frankly, that was happening, you know, pre-pandemic in a in a very rapid way. And obviously the pandemic put, you know, a real significant strain upon the industry and retail in general, but particularly the mall sector. Um, and, and those offerings that were experiential and food and beverage were particularly hard hit. But as we emerged from the pandemic, I, I think the industry you know, it's positioned to leverage off of those changes that were made and they'll continue to make those changes. And I also think you'll see, you know, a lot of additional, um, particularly in very strong malls where the demographics support it, you'll see the addition of other forms of real estate adjacent to the mall, residential, uh, office, as you see these broader uh, trends take place as people move to the suburbs, as you see people work from home more often. You know, the mall will really become uh, what it is historically meant to be, which is a community center. Well, that is that is good to hear because it's nothing better than throwing your money away, as I often do, going from the mall, by, <laughs> buying things and working up an appetite and then finding a place to eat a few steps away. And then, oh, let's cap it off with a nice movie somewhere. I I. I long for those days. Frankly, I haven't had that kind of experience since the pandemic started and really now that the pandemic is continuing. But I'm sure you feel the same way I do, that hopefully we'll get through this pandemic once and for all and we can all descend on the malls again. Well, clearly the most important thing that you know can happen for society and, and, and the economy as a whole and, and retail and malls specifically is to get the pandemic behind us. And, and obviously you know, with vaccine levels, hopefully continuing to increase um, get to a point where the pandemic is behind us. Clearly, the rise of the Delta variant has put, you know, a, a hiccup in kind of the economic recovery and retail sales, you know, were, were slightly down in July as a result of that. But if you look at 
the course of 2021 and you just look at just the level of pent up demand that exists just to get out and then the amount of you know personal savings and government stimulus money uh, that has been put in the economy i think the 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 foundation for a really strong economic recovery and particularly a strong retail environment over the course of the next 12 to 18 months is 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 really there our our prediction and we still stand you know behind our our projection is for about 11% growth in retail sales over the course of 2021. Mm, well, that would be great. Fingers crossed. Tom McGee, President CEO of ICSC. Thank you very much for your time. People are quitting jobs and moving to places where they've always wanted to live, but never thought they could because they had a job in another city. Well, you get it. Chris Glynn is with Zillow.com. Chris, I've been reading about this new phenomenon in real estate and in home ownership, as well as in renting. It's called the great reshuffling. What is the great reshuffling and why are we experiencing it now? The great reshuffling is a phenomenon we've observed really with the onset of the pandemic that allows households to reevaluate their housing needs in light of COVID-19. You know, for the first time, in the history of human work, we are now able to decouple where we live from where we work. Historically, it's been about port cities or factory towns, and now we can live anywhere and work remotely. And so that's had a huge impact on housing markets. The great reshuffling has allowed households to separate where they live from where they work. All right. So the question is, where are they going and where are they leaving? Are you seeing any trends there? We've seen a significant trend towards both warmer weather and more affordable housing. So places like Austin, Texas and Charlotte, North Carolina, Tampa, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, places that offer year-round outdoor living and relatively affordable housing compared to New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, those have been destination towns in the last year. How challenging is it in some of the hottest housing markets, you know, given the way that pricing is for people to, to stay in their homes in these hot markets like San Francisco, Seattle, places like that? So there's good news and there's bad news in these markets. So in a market like Austin, Texas, the good news is that for long-term homeowners, they have been able to take advantage of rapidly rising prices, and that's helped build their home equity. So you also have good news for people who are moving in and able to take advantage of relatively more affordable housing. The challenge has been for people who are trying to move from renting to home ownership and feel like with prices rising, that home ownership has been slipping further and further out of reach. And the good news for those folks is that interest rates are at historically low levels. So monthly payments on homes are still relatively affordable, but it's saving up for the down payment that has been the hardest problem. So how does this impact urban areas, downtowns, where businesses and restaurants, you know, once upon a time were thriving uh, because of the dense population in those urban areas? I would argue that cities are still and have been thriving throughout the pandemic. And that what we saw during the pandemic wasn't necessarily any sign of weakness in cities with people leaving. 
what we saw during the pandemic was not many people moving to cities. College graduates, for example, not moving to the big city after graduating from college. And so during the pandemic, it was very difficult to take advantage of all the amenities that an urban center offers, nightlife, theaters, restaurants. And as the economy is reopening, we're seeing renewed enthusiasm and quite frankly, value placed on proximity and access to the urban downtown area with rent prices growing both in cities, but also nationwide. So if you were to break out your crystal ball or whatever tools you economists use, what do you see five years from now for housing trends? And if we have the pandemic firmly in our rearview mirror, let's certainly hope that's the case. We believe that the future is flexible. And I believe that home ownership will continue to be something that is sought after. Price growth in some of these more rapidly rising areas will moderate. And we'll have a flexible workforce that either works entirely remotely in some companies or allows for one or two days a week in the office. And we're going to have a broader distribution of talent and economic opportunity throughout the the country. Chris, there are a lot of people in the baby boomer generation whose kids have moved out. They're living in a big empty house, right smack in the middle of a hot housing market. They're thinking about downsizing now that they're empty nesters, but they can't seem to make sense of it all, you know, at least on paper, because they wouldn't necessarily be saving money if they sold and moved at this point in time. You're absolutely not alone. And for many folks, the hardest part of selling their current house is finding their next house. And so as as the pandemic unfolded and it became more difficult and more competitive to find the house that you wanted, it became a bigger challenge and a bigger obstacle for folks to move. So you're absolutely not alone. And this is something that we've seen time and time again, both in our own data and surveys, but also in, in the behaviors of consumers who have decided to, to sit on the sidelines waiting for additional options to come onto the market. Chris, thank you very much for your time. And that is it for this week's America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? Also, follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is How America Changed Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.